Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show. Sorry, Jack. It's Allie's time to shine as we kick off the fourth in our series on the films A Star is Born. Maybe it's time to let the old ways down. Maybe it's time to let the old ways down. Takes a lot to change, man. Hell, it takes a lot to try. You know, man, in the old days, I always knew, like, you were going to do something, that you'd be all right. It's the first time I'm worried about you. Can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Tell me something, girl. Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they like the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. And there it is. It is. It is done. Until Which, until somebody makes another one. We've got <laughs> 40 years. What do you think? 40? 20? 40? Let's see. The shortest period was what? Uh, 37 to 54, right? Yeah. So uh, that was uh, what? 17 years? Math it up, fuzzball. Actually, hold on. So, so yeah. Yeah. 17, 26. And then uh, the big uh, 43 year. Yeah. Leap. Yeah. So 17. I feel like it's already time. Let's get another one going. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to tell you, Andy, after watching this one again, and I, I think, I, I mean, I, I like this movie. And I think this movie, watching this movie again, especially after the last three, this is the movie that does, in fact, answer the question, why do we make this story? I think that they fight. I think it took Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga to figure it out and get it right. And I uh, the the faults of the prior movies now feel like just a practice run at this story. And I feel like uh, I feel like this one hits it out of the park for me. What do you think? Yeah, I kind of feel the same. Um, it's been actually really interesting watching them all and 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 seeing what they've done, what they've changed, what they get right, what they get wrong, and working toward this one where I feel like exactly like what you just said. I feel like Bradley Cooper and his team uh, kind of watched the other iterations of this story and said, oh, this is an interesting element, but they didn't quite do this. And I feel mm-hmm. like it needs that. But they kind of did this here. And that's interesting. And they kind of found a, a, a way to kind of fix a lot of the issues that had been created in the other versions. And yeah, I I mean, I really connect with this film. I feel the performances are amazing. The story really shines. And it's just, it's a strong story here. And I feel like if, uh, I kind of feel like, uh, I mean, granted, I actually liked the other versions, um, you know, 
albeit not quite as much the the most recent one but the other the first two i i still enjoyed mainly because i enjoy the characters and i enjoy their connection i i feel like i i want to say and i again i don't think it's fair because i do like these but i feel like i'm gonna say what i said when we watched logan for the show if it took me going through wolverine and the wolverine to get to logan it was well worth it You know, I think that is a really fair um, assessment. I I agree with you. It was absolutely worth it. So maybe can we start by walking through some of the things that we feel like this film has um, repaired? Sure. I mean, I I think repaired is a strong word because it implies that it's broken. But I, I think that, you know, I, I think that they did it right, you know, because I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it's not it's just little faults. But yes. OK. Semantics. But the, still, the one that I notice the the most and, and the one that I have the greatest affinity to is is uh, the, is Cooper's character here this time, Jack. Uh, I. I feel like I understand something that they were trying to get at in the first three that I don't think was sold well after the first one. I think the first one I got this and and I I don't know that we necessarily talked about it, but the fact that there is an underlying emotional reason for his suicide at the end, and that is in exchange for her success. Right. It's like the devil's bargain. He is uh, he is doing this so that he can get out of her way in this movie more than certainly the last two so that she can have the rise to success that that he believes she deserves and i think cooper's performance sells both the fact that he deeply believes she deserves this that he is incredibly proud of her for what she's accomplished and that he is deeply sorrowful at his role in any of her complications as a result of of his drug abuse. And so by the end of the movie, I feel like he he really telegraphs why he is doing what he's doing in a way that the others haven't. What do you think of that? I, I, I agree and disagree because I don't think that they were all trying to do that. You know, you don't think, I think... You don't think that's part of the sort of underlining uh, or underlying uh, intentional narrative. I think it's part of it, but I think that it's also um, a little different because I feel like the way that we had the character primarily in the previous two versions of the story, uh, the studio handler who kind of said, you know, I've never liked you. You're just a drunk and all this. I, I think it puts him into I think he ends up killing himself because of because, yes, he doesn't want to hurt her, but also because he feels like he's such a failure. Mm-hmm. And I think that so so I think it becomes a much more twofold thing in those two. So it's uh, so I, I think it's hard. It, it's a little tricky to compare that with those. Um, well, but, especially I mean, because now you and I know the truth of the last movie, which is that he's just a drunk driver and <laughs> <laughs> too soon. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they well, and I you know, I was thinking about that. So what was that in the last one? Because he didn't really have that moment. I mean, he right. has in the in the 76 version, his producer, uh Paul Mazur played by Paul Mazursky, comes over and they have this conversation and he listens, he, you know, we come in on the conversation after it's after he's listened to after Mazursky has listened to some of uh Christopherson's new music and said, Oh, it's interesting, it's interesting. And Christopherson's like, Well, I you know, I, I 
I really want to start my own label now and all this sort of stuff. And it's kind of that conversation. And, and Mazursky's like, oh, okay, great. I, that sounds great. It's like kind of that sort of thing before we have um, Christofferson and Streisand and their last scene when we have the fade out and then he goes drunk driving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not the same at all. It really kind of, um, they let that go quite a bit, um, that sense of what he's doing. So I think, um, th- but regardless, I think you're still right in the fact that what Cooper does with his character in this film, uh, regardless of anything, uh, of what they were trying to do with those other, other ones, I think it makes it stronger. And I think that's the case to be made is, is it's a different take on it, but it's, it, it's the right take because it actually strengthens that point. Totally, totally. And I would say the other side of that same coin is that what this film delivers in his character more than the other characters, I think, collectively, uh, is a sense of joy at his experience, even though he is popping pills. The the effect of Cooper's performance in scenes performing with Lady Gaga on stage telegraph this sense of incredible earnestness and pride that I don't think we see anywhere else. And that sense of joy, I find really contagious. Uh, and and I can't help but like when he brings her out to, to do shallows, I think is the is the real peak of that for me. The way he is is sort of spiraling behind her, you know, in the frame behind her with this incredible uh, smile on his face, this joy as she is just her feet are kind of walking her out there without her knowing it. You know, that whole experience is is a sense of joyfulness in this movie that is a real high, a real emotional high that I don't think the other movies ever deliver for me uh, at all. I agree with you there. I think that that's a real strength here is that joy that he has with his career. It's hard to do the career portrayal i think in the first two because they're actors i mm-hmm. think that's just a trickier thing to do we do see her acting but it's always the musical stuff and so it's just musical numbers largely right um uh, and we get him on the ship i think when he's like you know wanting to go find her mm-hmm. but other than that it's not like we ever get to see him in his element really succeeding at it and enjoying it or really enjoying it, but finding he's not quite there. It's always kind of the outside looking in view of the life as an actor where it's just people seeing him as like, oh, we don't want to hire him. Mm-hmm. It's that sort of stuff. And that's, I think, where this um, these uh, series of films have found a strong footing in moving away from acting into music because you can actually watch the performances. It becomes an integral part of the film. So to that end, I think that's something that the, the Garland version did really well is by introducing that to us. But you're right. What we're getting finally with this one is his perspective and the fact that we really are sensing his joy and his his place in this industry. We, Christofferson, it's hard to say we get that because he is just such an angry character. And yes, it kind of fits yeah. the seventies, but it's, it's, you never really get the joy that he has with his career that we do get here. 
Well, and both movies open with a concert, and um, so we get a sense of the real sort of music. But, man, Christofferson, you don't get the feeling that he is, uh, I mean, he just feels like he's much further down the road of falling apart yeah. uh, in in the, the 76 version. And this one, you get the feeling that, yeah, he's popping pills, but we get to see what he's like as a successful performer. We get to see what those relationships look like, and by God, we get the crowds we get the uh, i love the sort of the 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 festival feel of everything that he's doing it it never feels played to me it it never feels you know repetitive i'm i'm into it every time he gets up on stage you know what we didn't get though though is a tron frisbee we didn't i was gonna say that but i thought it would make me too sad and now i realize <laughs> and it now, does and now it does now your heart's broken now i'm stricken with grief <laughs> <laughs> Something else that I think we get, uh, I, I think it's it was strong in the Garland Mason version. I think it was really lacking in the Streisand Christofferson version, and it is the meat cute. I think the meat cute in this one is just so stinking adorable when he um, goes into the drag club and he sees her perform La Vie en Rose, and you can just see his face as she starts singing. And you get this look on Bradley Cooper's face as he's sitting kind of in the back. I mean, the the first shot we have of him as he's listening to her is practically from the stage and he's across the room. But even from that distance, you can see in his eyes that connection, like, what am I hearing here? Mm -hmm. Something we never got in the Streisand and Christopherson version because it just it was he couldn't clunky. hear it because yeah. of Freddy Krueger. Right. <laughs> It wasn't even a dream. It wasn't even a dream. No, I totally agree with you. And that entire sequence in that, I, I mean, from from her performance, which is exceptional, to the after show, right, when he's alone and that other um, performer, or I can't, it was an audience member performing, I think it was a performer says, you know, play me something. I don't care what you play. Just look at me while you're doing it. That was, that um, was Willem Belly as Emerald. I, so perfect <laughs> it was so perfect because that is the kind of relationship that instant relationship where you feel like he's going to be a little intimidated because it's a little bit foreign to him and he's going to get up and he's going to put the guitar on he's going to sing whatever she wants to hear <laughs> i thought that was so perfect uh a, a, a way to to let you know ali meet him really to see him yeah. on stage i thought that was such a nice nice touch really was it's it's just beautifully done because they both really find a chance to connect and that's something we've never had before because largely when she meets him it's like oh it's this celebrity but here it's almost like a glimpse into his soul that she gets this little peek that i feel is really touching and lends a lot to the story unfolding it's sort of an interesting parallel, too, between the meet-cute with um, Mason and Garland, because we we get yeah. the same sort of professional connection that in both sequences, we see these women at work, right? They are doing, they might not love their jobs, they might have a different kind of job than, you know, one another, but they are at work. And uh, so, you know, we're done. We have shed all pretense of plucking the ingenue out of the farmhouse. Uh, that we started with in 1937. This is, uh, you know, straight up, you know, working class performers uh, being, you know, propelled to fame through this relationship. And I think that the opening with Mason and Garland is equally adorable, you know, that she sort of rescues him on stage. Um, you know, I, I, I had a strong connection with that experience, too. 
Well, and I think for me, what made that even stronger is when he tracks her down at the little nightclub afterward and he watches her from the back of the club, which Mm -hmm. is empty other than her and her musician pals performing. And he watches her. And that's that was, I think, a a great connection. I really liked that connection between Mason and Garland a lot. Um, And but still, I think this is the strongest one because it's just it's so great when she's singing uh, La Vie en Rose and and you can just sense that power, even with the little glances and just the way that there's that connection between them throughout the rest of the scene. It's just it really, really works. Uh, We have a different kind of relationship with the uh, manager. This time it's his brother. Right. We okay. so. The first two we had, there were two different relationships, like uh, different types of relationships. There was the studio, the studio head in the first two as right. Niles. And then we went to uh, the, I don't know, the label, the record manager, record. What was his role? The record producer? Yeah. Was he just producer. his stage manager, his, his manager? I'm not sure what Mazursky uh, yeah, was now that I'm I think sure. about it. I'm like, no, was he a yeah. manager? Um, uh, he was or, not a manager. No, he was with the label. He was the producer. Uh, yeah, and then and then we have the brother slash manager. I guess is what he is. And then on the other side, the contentious side. There's the we have the the two uh, or in the first two films, it is the uh, the the studio handler who doesn't like him. Is there a similar character in the 76 version? I guess it's the the disc jockey. Yes. Is that yeah, what we're I calling it? Yeah. I think that's fine. The disc jockey. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's what you'd call him in 76. Yeah, no, he was definitely a disc <laughs> jockey. <laughs> Warm up Wikipedia, kids. <laughs> oh, he had the uh, best name, too. What was his name? I don't think we brought him up. It was Baby Jesus. Yeah, ba- <laughs> Baby Jesus, right. Uh, in so. this movie, we have uh, Rez Gavron, uh, who is the antagonist. Right. You know, we're yeah. not doing friendship here. <laughs> <It's> so good. <laughs> well, the no socks. No or no drink. <laughs> Whatever. This is great. Oh yes. No, he's got the little uh what the did he say? Short he said they're the little lady short socks that uh, right. he called them there in the shoe. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh you're hiding them in there. That was great. Now yeah. it's so okay, so we have these two roles um uh, across the films. The this kind of the supportive manager who's trying to help them. And the uh, the nemesis, I guess you would say. How do what? What's your sense of these different roles? Well, I I loved this one so much. Uh, even though I I mean I did like the 1937 relationships and the press agent. I thought was you know we had a good time with him. Um, but in terms of uh, depth of relationship and and allowing these relationships to see a new part of this character, uh, this one was the one with Sam Elliott playing the older brother. Um, we we add a whole new sense of depth and background to this character that we don't have in the others, um, and and I think that was really powerful. And and it's done through very simple scenes. I mean, Sam Elliott's total screen time in this movie has got to be what six minutes? Like he's not in it that much, um, but when he is, my goodness, the scene where he picks up, uh, you know, his uh, Jack from rehab and takes him home in the truck, and they have that that sequence. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was. 
it, it, it was a punch in the gut. He says, you know, it was you I idolized, not dad, as he's choking out the tears. And then they let Sam drive away. Bobby drives away with tears in his eyes. I mean, it was mm. just incredible. It was incredible performing. Uh, so uh, that, I think, gave us a sense of and, and gave us the opportunity to learn about, you know, what Jack has become as a man as a result of the what we hear him talk about with his dad and uh, what we see in his relationship with Bobby. I think that was that was a magical addition to this movie that that leveled it up. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that th- by by creating this personal relationship that had a much deeper connection than we've ever had with that character, uh, as interesting as it is in some of the previous ones, especially the Niles characters, I, I think they did some really fun stuff with those characters. Mm-hmm. But those characters never are more than just kind of what ends up being an actor performing a role to fill a spot, right? It's not something that you are going to look back on and go, oh, the power of that performance. What I think they really smartly did here is find a way to give more to this role in the film so that it becomes something that has this personal connection to the character. And Sam Elliott, well, and one, it's just a really interesting relationship between the two. The fact that his brother is like 30 years older than he is, I think created a really interesting uh, dynamic there that, uh, that kind of kept that same kind of feel that you get with Niles, the older studio head and the actor. You know, I, I think that there was still that that sense of age and authority that came with with Bobby here. But the fact that he's also his brother and played by Sam Elliott, just I mean, it it really made this role shine. And uh, I, I, you know, it's it's frustrating because I would love to have seen seen Sam Elliott walk away with an Oscar for this performance because I just I really found it such a powerful one and I really connected with it as especially considering how little time he has on screen. Well, I mean, c- come on, man! After seeing this movie a couple of times, it, it that role being the brother has become an essential characteristic of a Star Is Born. I don't know how we got through the first three movies without it, you know, and and I can't imagine. Imagine the next three <laughs> versions of this movie uh, will be made without that sort of familial relationship. It's just too—it's too great an opportunity to explore who this character is. It really is. And the voice. Okay, wait a minute. We got to talk about the voice because they actually—I mean—that was in, in hearing Cooper talk about it. That became an essential part of who Jack is, and that it was that he always saw Sam Elliott in this role and that he had been working on the voice when he actually sat down to meet with Sam Elliott, like that whole experience of making that connection and then hanging a lantern on it in the movie saying, why'd you steal my voice? Uh, what'd you think of that? Well, and when you say you're working on the voice, you're talking about the fact that Bradley Cooper was had a dialect coach studying Sam Elliott's voice as his model for the character Jackson Maine, just to be specific as to what your point was there. That's exactly right. I, I never honestly thought about that line. You know, you, you stole my voice or whatever. I, I never thought about that because I didn't because I I'm invested in the characters and all that. I never thought about the meta nature of that line. Um, good. That's I, that's good. That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah, I think it works uh, outside of just that. I, I love the fact that he has that that voice through this film. I think that kind of deeper gravelly tone that Cooper adopted for this character, um, it works really beautifully all the way through. God, he pulls it off too, right? 
Like yeah. that, there is no, there's no opportunity for me to question it. Uh, I think I caught one opportunity where, where I questioned was that? it. Where or, was that? Uh, I, I don't know where, but I was like, uh, it felt, it sounded like, it sounded like Bradley, but then he kind of snapped back into his own voice. <laughs> well, I didn't catch it. I, <laughs> I felt really, really good uh, uh, about his performances and, and pulling off that voice consistently, especially when they're in, uh, in scenes together. It was, it sounded like a genetic connection. Like it was just perfect. It was just perfect. It's that Arizona, is that Arizona pecan farming that, uh gave them that voice mm, is that what happens <laughs> you, let, should we talk about celebrity or beauty next what do you think um or something well else? I don't know. let's do both well no, right. no 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 hold on hold on we didn't finish our conversation we were talking about the the studio heads uh, character but we got to talk oh, about yeah. the nemesis th- then how does oh, yes. that how does that work for you having having instead of having kind of this studio handler sort of character uh well or or then the 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 dj in baby jesus and now we have her manager how does that kind of shift work for you well i i think over the course of these three movies the relationship has become increasingly superficial and and i think that is an interesting statement right i i find like i and you remember in our conversation four weeks ago as we're talking about um, you know our our favorite PR guy, for me, that turn was really interesting and and complicated because I I did believe that they were friends. And over the course of the three movies hence, I have believed and trusted that relationship less and less. And so this movie, The Nemesis, um, you know, they they find every conceivable way to make him stand out culturally as a part from the family and i'm saying that heavily in air quotes right there is he is you know he's very fancy he's british he's got the no socks uh and he's shoveling things at alley like you know don't ever kick the dancers off the number don't i mean do these things that make your music increasingly pop increasingly saleable increasingly superficial and so as as a nemesis, by the time we get to the great nemesis moment, where he is as overt and hard uh, as, uh, you know, harder than any of these other, you know, movies uh, uh, that have come before it, I totally believe it. It is, and yet it is equally, you know, shocking at the same time. Like, it's, it is hurtful to hear how he talks to Jack. Well, and what I what I actually really like about the way that they, they changed it here is when it was the studio handler, there was nothing about the relationship between these two characters, between uh, his character and her character, um, as in, uh, you know, our older star and our uh, ingenue. There, there was only the relationship with the older star and the fact that he's always had to clean up after him and he, how much he hated that. And he only did it because it was his job. And now that he's, you know, at the tracks or whatever, he feels it's okay to kind of belittle him and all that. It's never, there's never a sense of the duality of the relationship. I really struggle with calling baby Jesus from the 76 version, this character, because I don't think that it really is. I almost feel like it's more of a member of the press, that representative. I don't know if we really have it. And I guess maybe it's in Mazursky's character, but it's a pretty weak one because it really, it's almost like a duplicate of the scene that, that Christofferson had earlier in the film when he was talking to uh, Gary Busey and it's like, Oh, tell the band that they're doing great. I've got this other thing I got to go do. And that's kind of it. I don't feel like that scene, that movie really succeeded at all in that scene. 
mm-hmm. which is yeah, really I, unfortunate. I agree with you. I, I agree with that. I, I think that uh, that it's it's sort of the, the the tension in that relationship has been totally excised as a as a result of maybe diluting the character across three. I don't even know if we had that character at all. in The third one is really. No. Know, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, it's not. Yeah. And I think what they do here uh, is really strong. And I think the strength comes in the fact that it is not in any real way a relation to him. This is her manager and so he can talk to him that way because he is protecting his talent and so i think it was a really smart way to make this shift for the character that made so much sense i as i saw that scene unfold i'm like of course it's of course that's what he's going to say he is protecting her and it's absolutely the thing that he's going to say he because because also he doesn't care at all he doesn't care lick about what happens to Jackson, as long as his star continues to rise. He's a jerk. But I still loved him, weirdly. Oh, no. no. <laughs> it's because he's British. That accent. What can I say? <laughs> Get away with anything. <laughs> okay, so so you wanted to talk. We had the celebrity and uh, and uh, beauty. Those two so elements. So the now. celebrity part. And, and yes. I really, I don't need, I mean, I think the movie does a, a very, very good job at capturing modern celebrity. And I think that's something that, that all of the movies have really endeavored to do to, to say, what does it mean to be a celebrity across each of the sort of eras that we're making this movie? And then this one, the scene that hits hardest for me is when they're just trying to get some stuff at the grocery store and the, the checker holds up her phone just to her chest to take a picture but the flash goes off and she says sorry i i I had to and he's like i I, it's okay i get it like that spoke volumes to me i thought that was such a powerful exercise in just the 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 fact that it is inescapable like you really you can't go anywhere without a driver in tinted windows because there's there's no escape all hours of the day uh and i think there were a couple of those moments where it it ends up being uh, tense in this movie and i think he captures it really well what'd you think it yeah i mean i agree it never quite goes to the extreme that we got in the previous two with just like the montage of flash bulbs going yeah. off and and all of that insanity that we get it never quite gets there did you want but... it to do you feel like it needed to I don't, I don't know, because as I see, as, as I kind of look at this film and and the absence of it, it makes me a little bit kind of question it because it's like in a film about the rise of a celebrity and kind of finding your art and telling your story, what is it saying when you add that element in there? Is it saying, Mm -hmm. you know, is it diminishing that story at all? I don't know. Um, maybe a little bit. And I think in this particular case, they have enough of it in there just to acknowledge that this is something that these people deal with day in and day out all Mm -hmm. the time, you know? It's much more subtle in this movie. Yeah. Even just trying to get into their cars, even the moment when after she performs Shallow and they're leaving that concert, they're walking out and the crowd is so great that all of a sudden she's separated from him and she's like, Jack, Jack, and can't find him at all. And then all of a sudden he kind of, you know, pushes his way back through the crowd to find her and bring her to the car. But it's it's that sense of that mob that you're constantly surrounded by. And uh, but yeah, it was more subtle. And I but I think it worked. I don't think it needed to be more than it was. I agree. I think it had enough of a voice 
uh, in this one. We, this one, we have much more of a statement, I think, an intentional statement on what is beauty in the entertainment industry. And I was thinking the, the element that we do get as far as the celebrity here, which actually may be a good connection to the beauty is the sense of what you need to do to be a celebrity. And I think that is where res really fits in the idea that as you brought up, you know, don't, you know, don't cut the dancers. They're there for a reason. You have to put your hair like this, like all of these different things that he's pushing her to do the more poppy version of her, um, that is in order to grow her celebrity and so it's it's more of that sense of it is like the things that you end up having to do and i think to that end the celebrity and the beauty end up fitting really nicely hand in hand like what do you have to do to actually keep your celebrity at that level and you know be in that place because they start this conversation about beauty very early in the movie and how how is it that bradley cooper is able to make this shot of him touching her nose sexy so early in the movie how is he capable of doing that it's so weird and yet it seems only to be weird in hindsight when i'm watching them this is back to sort of the meet cute sequence when i'm watching them and he's doing the nose thing uh it how 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 is it that that works in spite of being so weird because it's it's quirky and it's it's a moment you know you actually have this this situation where they're pointing out this thing that likely people have probably told lady gaga in her past you know these Mm -hmm. these things that people tell you about when you're trying to be a celebrity is like you're never going to get anywhere with the nose like that or oh you just don't have the body for it or whatever whatever it is they're going to say they're always going to come to some point about the way you look and Mm -hmm. i think that it's playing that up really nicely here just saying you know let's talk about it let's put it right out in front and make it you know, a thing of beauty, a thing that we are going to point out and we are going to do something with to have fun with it and and make it sexy so that we're kind of, you know, kind of holding up a mirror to what's going on in the industry so that we can go, yeah, it doesn't need to be this way. Well, I was doing and this is this is we should have done the same thing with with Babs's fro. He should have said, can I just can I just touch it? Totally. Well, I did a little bit of empirical research. My wife has not seen this movie. And so I thought, well, what if I just try to reenact it? And so I said, you know, can I touch your nose? And she looked at me like I was an insane person. And when I reached out to delicately touch her nose, she flinched like I punched her in the face. Like, it was not a normal reaction. Uh, (laughs) Or I should say it was a completely expected reaction. And I've been married to her for 20 years. So... Well, I don't see, there's know how the problem. Away with it. <laughs> you can't you can't do it with someone you're married to. It's, okay. it's called it's called flirting, and that's just something that when you've been married for a while, it just kind of <laughs> falls to the wayside. All right. Well, note to self: I've got some things to work on in my marriage. Then more more practice flirting. Uh, anyway, I I think it's it's adorable, and then I think she carries the water on th- this film in terms of you know being the 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 vessel for that transformation and for the every attempted physical transformation from uh you know we see her with the cheap sort of taped on uh, eye, eyebrows to the makeover and the hair changing color and and all of these things and it's not just that he sees her and is like no i liked you normal like we had in in the 
uh, some prior movies, we get her racked with anxiety to the point where she hides in the bathtub. Like uh, those experiences in the film, I thought were incredibly touching, and I think demonstrated even more powerfully um, a modern sense of the the physical aspect and and what we're asking of our celebrities in terms of their their own change. She does a great job with it, and right down to the fact that that uh, uh, Bradley asked her to not wear makeup. You know, yeah. he wanted her to be very authentic and and have kind of create that sense of this real person here in front of you. And I think that it uh, was a great contrast to to him. And granted, it's not like he was wearing makeup, but he was doing a full body spray tan every day to kind of keep that kind of that weathered skin look. Um, and I think that was a nice, I, I think he let her use lip balm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very generous, Bradley. Yeah, if you're remembered a, for anything. Giver. He is a giver. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, okay. So in the context of looking through these different, um, elements that are continuous through the different iterations, I feel like, uh, we have to talk about her first big performance. Her introduction to the world. I, I assume you're watching the Blu-ray on this one. I was actually not. Mm. I was streaming it. I, I got it on iTunes. Oh, good. Then we watched the exact same thing. So on the mm. special features on this one, there is a section called musical moments where it just lets you jump right to the to the, you know, the portion in the movie, not the music videos, but the portion of the movie. And I have watched The Shallows performance maybe a dozen times. And Andy, I'm not kidding. I'm weeping at the end every time. Yeah, me too. It's good. It's it, it's fantastic. It's a great song. And what enhances it is the way that she is brought onto the stage. I think that there is a real struggle that we get to watch of her making this decision of like, no, 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 there's no way I'm going to do that. And then you kind of just watch her on the on the the side of the stage uh, with her friend Ramon as she's kind of thinking through this. And he starts performing. He's like, I'm going to do it with or without you. And he just kind of starts and she's thinking and she walks out on stage. And what a moment just to see that as uh, as she takes the mic and starts singing. And becomes Lady Gaga. I mean, this right. is like the most Lady Gaga <laughs> right. song of the of the bunch here when she's doing the whoa, whoa, whoa you oh, know, that yeah, whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was great. I, you know, the, that sequence in particular where when the lights are changing on her face and the camera is is doing this incredibly patient close up on her watching her watch him as she's got her hands over her eyes and over her cheeks and on her head and she's really struggling and she's you can tell like at some point her head sort of nods forward a little bit and then her feet just start moving and we just track right along with her uh, as she hits the microphone and uh, I you know you I I feel like I'm on stage with her. So the the way the camera then moves around her so that we and I think I should say parenthetically, camera spends a lot of time behind the performers, giving us that that sense of being on stage uh, more than I think the other movies. But this one in particular, I just I feel every ounce of her anxiety and I am terrified that her voice is going to crack, that something's going to go wrong. She just nails it. And I'm sure it is because of her own personal experience or professional experience as Lady Gaga, but man, does she nail it as a human being. 
in in this scene. It's just incredible. Now, you said the song was great. The song is just great, and it is made for movie moments, right? It has these two fantastic builds, um, you know, after the chorus, uh, the first being, in, I should say, after the verse, first the second verse, first into the, you know, I'm off the deep end, whatever, and then the ah, 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 uh, I mean, it it is made for those big transformations coming out of the shadows and then moving to the center mic and everything about it just uh, it, it's just uh, brings the tears. It's perfect. Performed by two people with the perfect voices for the song. Yeah. Like the, I feel like the song was just perfectly written for their voices. It's absolutely. so good. Oh, God, absolutely. And And we should say, you know, this is uh, one of those movies where... You know, uh, Cooper invested heavily of his uh, time and energy and attention to learn how to pull this off and to learn how to sing and to learn how to sing with this voice and to learn how to play the guitar and to uh, and to be, you know, a touring musician. And man, I'll tell you, I think he nails it with the greats. Uh, and to hear the the other musicians who've worked with him and have such incredible and Lady Gaga who have such incredibly kind things to say and complimentary things to say about his ability to perform, it's pretty stunning. Yeah, she uh, she convinced him that they needed to sing live for the film, um, and and because he wasn't planning on that. But she said she hated watching movies where it, the that whole lip syncing thing, and and so. He, they said, she said, we have to get it right. We have to sing live. And so, yeah, he got just tons of vocal training. And then he was working with Lucas Nelson, who's Willie Nelson's son, who uh, is, uh, sings with uh, Promise of the Real. And, uh, and Lucas taught Bradley to play the guitar. They practiced like every night for a year in Bradley's basement, just, just playing the guitar so that, that Bradley could learn how to play a guitar, like a, like a rock star. And it really shows it's amazing. And actually it's, it is Lucas Nelson and promise of the real that is playing as, uh, as Jackson's band throughout the film. And it's just, it's so nice feeling like this is authentic. Like these people are really performing here. It's, uh, it really is uh, strong stuff. Well, and apart from the movie, I find that whole story enormously inspirational, right? That Bradley Cooper can can conjure this uh, out of a year of of, you know, hard effort with a professional band. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it might I might not be able to do it in a year, but I can put a clock on it. <laughs> All right. Well, two years. It'll be the, the, <laughs> the next real performance. We're going to go on the road. That's right. You and me, baby. So looking forward to it. Looking uh -huh. forward to it. So we go from her performance uh, and then it really becomes her rise and his fall. And, um, how, okay. So how, how is that work in this film for you? We're kind of seeing moments of her career as she's kind of, uh, finding the spotlight and, uh, and moments of his and something actually that we should point out that they did integrate into this film that we haven't seen at all before is this idea that he is dealing with health issues as well. He's got a hearing loss that he's been suffering. Uh, clearly something happened when he's a kid. He's talked about it. He kind of had this thing on his ear that they had to remove. But, and so I, I never quite uh, understood if that is kind of what led to his hearing loss or if it's purely because he just doesn't take care of himself and put in, uh, in anything to kind of protect his ears during shows. Uh, right. I mean, it's just a par for the course, the fact that he says, I can't play in those things, you know, like yeah. it's, of course we would expect him to do that. He already treats his body like, you know, garbage. So of course that's what he's going to do. Um, I, I actually found 
this uh, remarkably balanced on the second view. When we were watching the other three, I, it had been a while since I'd seen the movie, and um, and I started, you know, my memory of it was that ah, I, I feel like it's kind of one sided in the kind of bottom half of the movie that it's mostly Gaga's story. But, uh, you know, on this watch, it's it's really not. It feels measured between, uh, you know, her rise and her practicing and the dancers. And we get uh, an experience with her at SNL, which I think was really fun and uh, and kind of dark uh, and we have this new relationship between her and her father, uh, exceptionally played by, weirdly, exceptionally played by Andrew Dice Clay. Um, <laughs> so who, good. He's so good. He's so good and so measured. And um, uh, and and then uh, between him and him and his brother and him and, and uh, Ron Rifkin, his counselor in uh, rehab and that whole experience, which I thought was just terrific and touching. And uh, all of this sort of, even though we know what the story is like, all of the work that he's putting in, uh, I think of the four, this is the most believable that there is a horizon out there where Jack's okay, where Jack makes it through and everybody's uh, everybody makes it to the other side, thanks to the way the movie has has put together all the pieces. So that's OK. So let's talk about his fall, because in the first two, it's an actor and he's older. And so he he kind of hits this point where he's just not getting the parts. They're like, no, you know, she was great, but yeah, it's like people. People are kind of done with him. He's he's been around, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a, 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 a kind of a much different relationship because of the big age gap between the two of them. In '76, he's just angry. He's an angry drunk, and nobody wants to work with him because he's dangerous. He's crashing bikes off the stage, all sorts of stuff that's causing lots of problems, and they just don't want him around anymore. Do we have enough of that in this one to say? Uh, to say anything other than, you know, he's just having these hearing issues and it is just purely his drug habit. Oh, I, I see what you're getting at. Like, what is the what is the instigating factor behind his malaise? Yeah. It, or is it just the fact that he has a drug habit? Like his career is fine if only he would lay off the alcohol and the and the pills. And so I would I guess I would say, OK, what if the answer to that is yes? Is that enough? And for for me, it is. I think it is, too. Uh, I, I'm just curious because it's taking it in a different direction from the previous three films where we really have a guy who's has a fine career. And I, I, I think to that end, I think you could argue or maybe um, that in this day and age, it might not be so much about your age. I think that people can have longer careers. Uh, I don't think that's always the case, but I, I don't think it's as much an issue. Um, I, I want to add, though, I think that that, you know, he plants all the right seeds that this is a guy who's, you know, early family life, his relationship with his father, like he's been battling, you know, depression, uh, probably some, uh, you know, manic disorder all his life. I mean, the story about trying to kill himself on the ceiling fan is is a, a true gallows scene in this movie that he and his therapist are are laughing about it, you know, as a point in history. But that is an important point in history that paints a picture that this guy is off kilter from the very beginning. So, you know, we're catching him at this point in his life where maybe it it it's it's the drugs, but it's also very much part of his identity that he's been on this road all along 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, his dad was his drinking buddy. I mean, it's, yeah, I think there is a, a there is that. I it, and honestly, I mean, you know, Bradley Cooper is somebody who had been dealing with his own um, addiction issues with alcohol mm-hmm. and pills, and he says that sobriety is the only thing that saved his career. And I think that I think it, that speaks quite strongly to me as far as the point that he's making here is that you don't need to to have your career fall apart just because you got older you don't need to have your career f- fall apart because you're angry and no one wants to work with you it can be simply this addiction that we've had in the previous three films that can ruin your career and i think we get that and and here he is just a just a mess of a an addict and that he i mean he's just you know pushing himself into this place that it you know he's just not going to be able to go on anymore so i think that it's an it's a it's an interesting perspective that simplifies it to a certain extent but in a way where i think it works very effectively i do too i think it's a sign that they went back and whittled away this character uh you know the com- complexities of the character to something that's just more raw and um you know i i think the other uh movies uh, perhaps you know we're we're hanging on uh, artifice a little bit more that makes them by comparison uh look like they're overcomplicating what is a really you know a much more simple human state of deep grief and addiction and uh and I just I think you know Cooper pulls it off for whatever the reason uh he just he crushes it he does have kind of a nod to that soul crushing work as he goes to perform at the whatever it was like a prescription, like a pharmaceuticals convention or whatever. Yep, yep. So I guess there's that little nod. That's kind of a hint to it. And obviously, I mean, and I guess this gets to our next big element is the award ceremony. He is asked to perform at the Grammys, but not sing. He is asked to play the guitar for this uh, Roy Orbison tribute band. What a fantastic scene that is. And and what a, a brilliant way to to sort of use the music to build that dramatic tension, particularly when he starts to play and he goes into that uh, that sustained you know, Orbison, mm. you know, uh, passage and everybody's wondering, what is he doing? And then he goes on and he rocks the song, but he has no idea when it's over and he has to be taken off stage. Is it over? Are we done? Uh, which is <laughs> which is heartbreaking. And that leads to, of course, the interruption of her speech, which we have we've come to um, uh, we've come to know pretty well. Uh, the, how does the the how does this one strike you as unique from the others? Well, we have, and I, you know, I can't remember exactly what happens in the very first one. I can't remember how, uh, how the reaction is, um, when he comes in. Do you remember that one? This is at the Oscars. This was the first one. We still, we had the slap. She's at the Oscars. The accidental slap. Yeah. She's at the Oscars. She's giving her speech. And is this the one, <laughs> see, they're all running together. Is this the one where he comes out and he's yelling, uh, I got the, I need the award for the worst performance. Or was that uh the second one who gets the worst who gets the worst oh that may have been christopherson that's oh, christopherson andy yeah because christopherson is very angry james mason james mason is very uh kind of pathetic and you know mm-hmm. i just need a job you know that's very right that's right that's sad. right begging. yeah the very much the beggar and for some reason i just now i can't place the first one and exactly how that one played um regardless uh here we have bradley cooper who's just drunk 
I mean, he's just a drunk. He's not trying to speak. He's not trying to take over her speech at all. There is no slap. But what we do get is an incredibly embarrassing moment as he comes up on stage after kind of half passing out on the steps. He kind of makes his way up to the stage to stand next to her and proceed to wet his pants. I yeah. I feel like that's a hard one to top, even more so than the other ones. Talk about a turn, because there is a moment in this where you are you're already feeling pity for him but you're feeling pity insofar as you're feeling pity for their relationship like how sorry it is that he is up there disrupting it like this but but he's also kind of adorable right he's he's that he's in that that space of being kind of an, a, a sad adorable drunk where he's like super into all the lights and the giant mm-hmm. picture of her in the back <laughs> and he's kind of pointing at it and right and it, you just you know you live a little and you know those people and it's it's sad and crushing and then he turns around and uh and and wets himself and the sound of the audience and you know her awareness and awakening of it when she tries to stretch her dress out over it to kind of protect him and just end up falling all over each other and the the real climax of the sequence is is them taking him down the hall and having you know dice you know push him up against the wall and and yell at him why are you doing this to my daughter um, even though he can't, he's not lucid. He can't respond and just dropping him in the shower. That was, a that's a, an amazing, um, amazing fall compared to the others. Right. Really is. And that, uh, leads to the suicide and, and we've had the drowning in the first two and the car crash. And now we end up with a hanging, uh, how, what, what, what'd you think of the, the switch to the hanging in this one? Well, it was it was uh, it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing because it was a callback to the setup earlier in their conversation and the laughing. Uh, it was uh, it, it was perfectly executed, so to speak, um, using that kind of mid torso shot watching where we're really wa- tracking with him as he's wandering around the garage, getting things in order. And he's clearly inebriated uh but he has the the belt in his hand um it's pulse quickening uh because there's no there's no other way that this is going to end and it's it it's uh it causes the throat to seize up it is just perfectly realized and not gratuitous right i mean you don't see it in the 76 version they actually give us the body on the road and um you don't get any of that this is all done in yeah. heart-wrenching uh, sequences of uh, lights and finally the closed garage door and the dog, his dog sitting, lying down outside the garage door, which, um, you know, I mean, it was the appropriate level of heartbreak for me. But you can see him swinging through the garage door. Yeah, but you can't. It's obscured, you know, like it, it is, but you still get it. You still get it. Well, you get it. But I'm, you know, we don't have her I, I compared to the sort of gratuitous nature of 76, where she's falling on top of the dead body on the side of the road. That's what I mean. Like, it is not you don't get that. No. Right. Right. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, is it, was it effective for you? Oh, Tell very effective. It was, effective. Come no, on. it was very effective. And I, I, I mean, I, I like that we I, I almost think that there was a tiny nod to the, the drownings that we had. Um, in the first two films, when we have him at the kind of the retreat where he's kind of getting well and healing up from his alcoholism 
And we have that underwater shot of him kind of swimming and kind of coming out of the water. I was like, oh, that might be a nice little nod to the the drownings that we had the first couple times. But then to have him hang himself, I'm like, okay, I don't think thematically there's any reason why it makes sense to have made the switch. Like, I don't see why it, you know, why did it have to be hanging? There's no specific reason other than the story. But that being said, with that story and everything, I think it actually ends up being a really effective uh, change for them to have made here. All the way home. So, yeah. Okay, uh, we should jump to the last song, can we? Mm. Uh, what? Well, first of all, it's a lovely last song. This is a song that that had been set up earlier. It was uh, lyrics that he had written while he was in, I guess, while he was in rehab. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that they had... Um, uh, gone about putting some music to there was a touching little scene earlier in the film where they're on the piano together and then um you know this is her last song where she introduces herself and uh and has a lovely speech uh you know about ha- allowing her to sing this you know for jack and um then she launches into it now the the execution of the song we get a wonderful long um sort of uh the the full performance Right. Yeah. It's a long single single take, take. just like before. Until we get to, you know, it does start to break in a little bit. And I was curious at at what you thought of how it broke up the end of the song, where it cuts back to them on the piano and the final, you know, cutting to to them sort of singing it together uh, and not ending, you know, not letting her sort of finish the last two bars. I end up liking it. It's a choice that I don't know if I would have made. But I get why Cooper made it. And in the end, when I watch it, I feel like it's a, a strong choice because it it brings back that sense of the relationship between these two. And it, it, it gives me a sense of him kind of saying these words to her. And so I, I, it's, it, I can see where it may kind of kill the momentum of the emotions of the song as she's performing it. But I feel like it finds a way to kind of reconnect the characters a little bit. I, you know, I, I would say the same thing with the exception of I absolutely wouldn't have made that choice. I think it is disruptive to the momentum of the last song. I didn't like it the first time I saw it. It's growing on me, but it's still the only thing in this movie that is uh, the proverbial speed bump for me visually. What I want in this last song is I want Allie to finish her thought. And I yeah. think it it is it is broken up in a way that is uh, it's a little bit disappointing to me. And because, you know, we do end up coming back to this long shot on her face, which is a callback to all of the luxurious lingering shots on her face from the sideways shot where she's laying on the bar in the ga- in the uh, uh, drag bar to um, the, the long lingering shot where she's backstage about to come out and sing shallows. We get these shots on her face that are framed so um just beautifully uh and i kind of wanted to end with a discreet uncut you know end of phrase uh on that as it is i love how it ends i love the the tear on her face i mean i think it's just lovely but uh it is it's a break of momentum for me well i can't argue the point because i i feel like it's a it's a point that makes sense um and i feel like i'm finding reasons to apologize for it um, but, uh, I, yeah, I feel like perhaps it would have been stronger if he didn't do it that way. Yeah. Um, but you know, it is what it is. I do have a note about that song that I think is really interesting. And I think it speaks to the power of her performance. 
Um, the day they filmed this, let me just read this. The day they filmed the movie's climactic piano torch song, I'll Never Love Again, Gaga rushed from the soundstage to her friend Sonia's bedside at her at the hospital. She passed away that day after a long struggle with cancer. At the urging of Sonia's husband, Gaga drove right back to set and poured everything she was feeling into that performance. I sang that song for Jackson and for her. So thank you, Sonia's husband. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> if that guy didn't get a credit in this movie, uh, uh that's a real shame <laughs> he needs one because <laughs> uh, that's a that is an incredible story and it's hard not to think about that as you're watching the film it's hard not to disconnect from you know once you know that story and watch her perform this this song and that's what i'm thinking of as he chooses to break the last phrase is yeah what would sonia say I mean, and I, I mean that like not as a joke, like let her finish the thought. And and so I, I don't know, I, I'm getting sort of un, unnaturally riled up about it but because um, I, I, I don't feel that strongly about it. It's such a beautiful um, ode to both this wonderful character that Cooper's created and and he does it so beautifully um, uh, throughout. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk a little bit more about getting it made? Yeah, just real quick. Um, this was uh, this was a film that had been bouncing around for a little bit. This uh, since 2011, people had been talking about doing a new version of A Star Is Born. Clint Eastwood was actually attached to direct it with Beyonce as the star of the film. That would be an interesting pairing that I'd be happy to see. Right. Um, it fell into development hell for a while. Various actors were going in and out of the project. Christian Bale, Leonardo DiCaprio, Will Smith, Tom Cruise. And uh, and then it just never ended up happening. And finally, March 2016, um, Bradley Cooper signed on to star and direct it. And this was, I think, around the time, I think he came to it through Clint Eastwood because of their pairing with American Sniper. And I don't know if Eastwood, I feel like I, I read somewhere that that Cooper was on to star and he and Eastwood were talking about Lady Gaga and and uh, did screen tests with uh, Lady Gaga and uh, and Cooper and, and thought that it would work. And this is after Cooper had to really convince Warner Brothers. And I swear it's it's so true, just like it is in the movie. He really had to convince Warner Brothers that she was right for the part because they were really wary of it. And it wasn't until seeing the screen test that they uh, agreed. Um, and then he was on to direct it. And he apparently always wanted to direct. Who knew? I didn't. And, um, yeah, and they started the, they started filming at Coachella in April, 2017. That was the, uh, the first place they performed. And, uh, she was apparently the first female headliner there in 10 years. And, uh, they started filming with the concert stuff. So, wow. Well, now, and that is, that's a, a actually a, a wonderful thing that you feel in this movie is just how many concerts that they were able to to sort of capture, how many times they snuck up on stage to to do these things, and and uh, and, and the the wonderful story uh, that Matthew Labatique uh, says about you know I, I can't remember if it was I don't think it was Coachella it was one of the other ones another one of those festivals and they um, you know they they had like four minutes and it might have been a Chris Christopherson concert I think. They mentioned something about one, oh, yeah, of, right, one right. of the concerts they crashed was a Chris Christopherson concert. And he said, sure, you can get up there. It was it was Christopherson's wife who says, you can get up there. You have four minutes. And so <laughs> they ran up, they got everybody riled up and they they had two cameras, but only Matthew Levitique and uh, Cooper. And so uh, they had 
uh, Lars Ulrich of Metallica. They said, here, put a camera on your shoulder and just come out and shoot this and we'll see what happens. And so for that one scene on stage, there are uh, two camera operators. One is the <laughs> cinematographer and the other is a representative of Metallica. So I think that's, that's awesome. a, a lovely story. And then at the end of that, Bradley Cooper uh, turned around and introduced Chris Christopherson to come out and perform, which I think is great. Really cool. One other note, um, we started talking a little bit last time about John Peters, who was with Barbara Streisand at the time when they were doing the 76 version. And so he was kind of an executive producer on that one or a co-producer, I can't remember, and um, and then kind of became a, a head of Sony. He ended up having all sorts of issues in and I mean, his his life kind of turned into a giant mess. He's a really interesting read if you kind of pull up any sort of bio on him and just kind of all the mess about the Superman films and the Sandman and his harassment lawsuit with sexual harassment in the workplace, um, just everything. I mean, his career really effectively ended um, around the time of Superman Returns and all the credits that he's gotten since then, which is really this and Man of Steel, it's just because his, you know, because he happened to have been attached to it. And this film, he was only credited, like I said, because he owned the rights. And actually, Warner Brothers and Bradley Cooper told him to completely stay away from any filming. They did not include his name amongst any producers who would be nominees for an Oscar if it got Best Picture. They stated before the film's release that they regretted it was necessary to work with him at all. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. And Bradley, Bradley Cooper said it was a very positive atmosphere. He said, fortunately, John wasn't there. Wow. So, God, That's I mean, what you a, don't, what, what you don't want to indeed. Yeah, you don't want to be that guy. Ugh. No. So, wow. Well, uh, you know, we talked last week, you introduced this, uh, uh, the, this, uh, section segment where we talked about the script and walking through the credits. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting to walk through kind of who gets credit for what and you know, and so we're talking about John Peters producer. How did the credits end up working out for this? Yeah, so so this one is credited uh, for a screenplay by Eric Roth, Bradley Cooper, and Will Fetters, based on the 1954 screenplay by Moss Hart, based on the 1976 screenplay by John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion and Frank Pearson, based on a story by William A. Wellman and Robert Carson. I think I think that what's nice to see is that uh, there's a little representation from everybody we're getting a little bit of the 54 bit uh 76 in here and all the way back to 37 so i feel like there's kind of this equal representation where everybody's getting recognized the only one that didn't is 1976 did not recognize the 54 script at all which is well and and 1937 does give us william wellman and robert carson but you know wither dorothy parker andy wither dorothy parker well, and again, it goes to this whole notion of the story versus the screenplay back then and, and yeah. that delineation that obviously they find very critical because it's it's been that way since. Wither Dorothy Parker. Yeah. Anybody in the cast that you feel like we haven't talked about who deserves a mention? You know, I, I feel like we've pretty much touched on everybody. The only ones, uh, uh, the only one that I would throw out there that we haven't, the only two that I would throw out are Anthony Ramos as Ramon, who I just loved as as um, as Ali's friend, and Dave Chappelle as Jack's friend. 
yeah, that was that was great. Uh, finding uh, you know when when uh, Chappelle finds uh, Jack on the on the lawn, I got to throw in Greg Grunberg as uh, Phil the driver. I think he was fantastic, and I love their relationship. And I think it's yeah, great to nice see one. him in here. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think we uh, I think we got it. Eddie Griffin it was fun to see Eddie Griffin in here. So uh, a lot of little, <laughs> Very briefly, uh, little yes. spot parts here that were, were fun yeah. to, to check out how to do an award season. This was a big one. This was a big one. This uh, it had 66 wins and 226 <laughs> other nominations. <laughs> Very popular. Very different from, you know, the the quantity of award shows that were around back in the previous three eras so uh, yes i guess it makes sense but it also speaks to the popularity of the story and how well it's being received um as we know as this just the oscars for this just happened uh recently the uh it, it was nominated you may have heard for a number of oscars it was nominated for eight oscars it won for shallow Best original song, which was a great one, and it was fantastic to see Lady Gaga get the award there. The other awards that it was nominated for uh, include Best Picture, but as we talked about, uh, it did lose, in fact, to Green Book. Um, yeah, I'm not, uh, I don't, I feel like we've talked about that. I don't feel like we need to say any more about that particular odd choice but yes green book one a star is born did not i don't actually think a star is born would have been my pick but after rewatching it maybe it would have i don't know um it was nominated for uh bradley cooper it was nominated for best actor he lost to rami malek for bohemian rhapsody um lady gaga was nominated for her performance but olivia coleman won sam elliott was nominated but mahershala ali from green book won and then we had um the best adapted screenplay but that lost to black Klansman and spike lee which was uh, it was nice to see spike lee take home an award there i can't uh, argue that one the best uh, cinematography, Matthew Libatique, who, I mean, he shot this beautifully. It was a really beautiful film. But Alfonso Cuaron won for Roma. I don't think that surprised anybody. And uh, last but not least, best achievement in sound mixing for the fantastic work they did creating these concerts. That lost to Bohemian Rhapsody also for the uh, fantastic concerts that they uh, put together. So if it's going to lose to one, at least it lost to that, because both of those films, I think, had exceptional sound. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense for that loss. Um, the only other one that I mean, there's a lot. It's it's a big honking list of of uh, awards. But the other one I was going to pull up was just the Grammys that uh, it did, in fact, win at the Grammys as well for the song Shallow. So, oh, and and this was another note that I wanted to point out. In fact, I think you had started this note. Lady Gaga has had nine wins and 24 nominations at the Grammys. And I think this is great to know that Bradley Cooper now has one win for, <laughs> uh, for performing that song with her. And he has one other nomination. Uh, so how it. nice is that? I how love nice it. That? It's great. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, man, this Bradley Cooper character. Like, he's really good at this filmmaking thing. You know, he's really good at it. Yeah, I agree. And I feel really bothered that people look at what he's accomplished here and say, you know, he's, you know, he's just a, you know, it's a, it's a vanity project. He's just, uh, he's too good. And yeah. all of this nonsense that you keep hearing, I'm like, what's wrong with that? He's amazing. He's an amazing actor. 
clearly is a great director and singer, and he just knows how to put something together. I think he did a great job here. Exceptional job. And and when you look at, I mean, this film, the, uh, the his his eye and Matthew Libatique working together on this, I mean, their sense of space in the frame uh, is glorious. I mean, this film is made for a, a rich uh, HDR, like Dolby Vision screen. It is it is a, a, a lovely film of such glorious color and light. And uh, it's it is it's such a natural it feels effortless. It feels just effortless. Uh, and so it's I'm, I'm with you. It's really frustrating to hear um, to hear critics demean it like that. This is every bit a showcase of talent all across the board. I'm I'm just super thrilled that we finally got here. <laughs> How to do the box office. Well, uh, Cooper had a hefty budget of $40 million for his debut feature, which still isn't as high when it's adjusted as what they spent on the Garland Mason version. This wow. movie was released October 5th, 2018, opposite Venom and the little-seen salsa dancing flop, Shine. The Cooper and Gaga magic could never quite get past the kidney eater, but it did hold on to the number two spot for its first four weeks. It went on to make $215 million domestically and $217.4 million internationally for a total of $432.4 million. All told, it was a huge success, raking in an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $2.9 million. That being said, it's actually, but maybe not surprisingly, that the 76 version actually has the highest profit-to-cost ratio, earning back more than 13 times its budget. Still, Cooper and Gaga have a lot to be proud of with this one, and inevitably have set Warner Brothers up to plan on another remake in 17 to 42 years. <laughs> Standing, I can't wait. <laughs> well, Andy, I think it's probably time for us to see uh, see if it can <laughs> ease its way over the three star uh, that that is the bar, the three star bar that has been set by its predecessors over on uh, Flickchart. What do you think? All right, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about. You can even look for uh, all the other uh, Star is Born movies and uh, see how they stack up on our list. But if you swipe over in your show notes and you hit the word Flickchart, that should take you straight over to this movie in Flickchart's database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, A Star is Born or Rocky Three. Star is Born, sir. Uh, Rocky Three for me. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> oh, yes, I am. Of course, it's a star is born. I just wanted to <laughs> rile you up a little bit. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, a star oh. is born. Or <laughs> no more of that. That was, That's that was so worth that it. Hurt that my, so worth hurt it. my head. <laughs> a star is born or Rocky Balboa. I got to go with star is born. Star is born. Although I have to say, I, I have to tell you this. While did I tell you this story? While my dad was convalescing, the day after it, they'd cracked open his heart and given him four bypasses, I made him watch Rocky Balboa. I think that healed him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, next. You should have shown him Creed because that's where they're dealing with heart issues. Oh no! I, he had to see the the old man doing the keg toss. That was too oh, much. Yeah, right. Yeah, he, he wanted to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we are sticking with the Rocky battles here. We got A Star is Born or all the way back to 76, Rocky. Star is Born for me. Star is Born for me. A Star is Born or Children of Men. Oh, Children of Men for me. Um, 
I feel like I need to search for children of men on my own list and see what I said. Uh, is it, where is it? Is it higher than that? I don't know. Uh, yes. Children of men, please. Wow. All right. I had to validate. That's quite the dilemma. I know. A Star is Born or Snowpiercer? I'm going to say Snowpiercer. Yep. Snowpiercer. A Star is Born or Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Close Encounters for me. Really? Oh, always. Um, I could probably, jeez. It's Close Encounters. I know. I'm going to say Star is Born. Oh, mashed Potato Mountains. Yeah. All right, let's do it. All right. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. You know what? I'm okay with it. They're, they're so close on my chart that it really doesn't matter. Okay. All right. A Star is Born or Up in the Air. I'm going to say Star is Born. No. I'm going to say Up in the Air, but I, I, uh, I'm okay if I lose this one. Okay. All right. One. One. Two. two three. three scissors. Paper. Okay. All right. Up wow. in the air takes it. A Star is Born or Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Star Trek II. Mm. You are really struggling. Star Trek II. All right. A Star is Born or Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Okay. Well, that puts A Star is Born at 50 on our chart. 50 out of 398. So uh, it's wow. up there. It's a uh, it's an eighty seven percent on our chart. That's amazing. Uh, actually, that's, that's I mean, it's not spot. amazing. It actually doesn't really surprise me all that much. <laughs> like what? <laughs> yeah, no. I it's I it feels a little bit like uh, I don't know. Maybe we should have been the contrarians uh, rather than just throwing more praise on this movie. Like it has enough praise already, but I just can't be that guy. I adore this movie. Uh, it how did it do on your own list? Uh, this film did really well for itself. It landed at uh, 582 out of 4,118. So it's 86%. So pretty close. Um, mine ended up on, I'm oh, sorry, a star is born. Vamp, vamp, vamp. While you're looking, just out of curiosity, if you had to guess the order that the four stars born films landed on our chart, what would you guess they, how, they, how they ranked? Well, this one is number one. Uh-huh. And then I'm going to say 56, uh, 37, no, how about 37, 50. 54, 76. Tell me 76 uh-huh. is the bottom. The other two I can handle. Um, no, actually. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, the, the 54 version ended up at the bottom. You're right. Otherwise, it went 2018 and then 37 and then 76 and then 54. Okay. I think you your issues with the 1954 version drove it down there. Yeah, I had issues. I definitely had yeah. issues. Oh, God. Please stop singing. Uh, this one, the 2018 on my list, ended up at 63 out of 1,077. And weirdly, according to the algorithm, I should be rating this as four and a half stars, or 94 out of 100 uh, elsewhere. I disagree with that. For me, this is a five star and a heart over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. When I first watched this, I gave it four stars and a heart. And after rewatching it, I questioned my judgment because I really loved yeah. it. So it is a five star and a heart for me too. I just I, I think everything 
all the decisions made in the modifications to get us from 1937 to here were done so smartly. This is just, I think, a, a beautiful story with amazing performances, powerful characters, just all done just right. So I, I love it. I love it. I love to be able to say, after watching all of these movies together, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I love getting no. it. It's a great, uh, I, and actually, I really enjoy that this is kind of a modern uh, story that actors are going to kind of continue to tell over time. And I'm totally okay with that because I think it's a really compelling story with really interesting characters. And I like that they kind of take what's kind of current and put it into each version and give us that that story. And I certainly look forward to future iterations of this. As perfect of a film as I think that Bradley Cooper has made here, I'm okay with other people playing around with it down the road and seeing what they can do with it. I think it's a story worth retelling. I disagree. I think they finally got it right. They should hang it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's but it's like Hamlet. It's a, you know, I look at it like those sorts of stories where it's like, you know, Hamlet is a great play. Yeah, I know. I know. Why can't you you know, everybody's going to want to do it. Just, you know, let them do it. There's always going to be this version. Because they already got Hamlet perfect with, what was it, Hamlet the sequel? Hamlet 2, what was that? Yeah, Hamlet 2, oh, I love that one. <laughs> All right, Andy, where do we go from here? We're changing it up. We really are. Uh, we are going to be jumping to a, an interesting, I think it's a uh, an unofficial trilogy um, that Cedric Klapich directed. He is a French director who, uh, who made this series of films that uh, is called the Spanish Apartment Trilogy. And it's going to be uh, kind of fun to explore uh, a little bit about Cedric Klapich and his career because he's not somebody we've ever talked about on the show before. But we'll get to kind of talk about his career and uh, this trio of films, which is La Berge Espagnole, which is the Spanish Apartment, um, the Russian Dolls, and Chinese Puzzle. So those are our next three films that we're going to be looking at. I started watching La Berge Espagnole today, Andy. Got about 15 yeah. minutes in. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. I saw it in theaters, believe it or not. Really? Uh-huh. It's, it's uh, I don't want to spoil it, because I haven't even seen the whole thing. But, Andy, it's pretty cute. I loved it, and I'm very excited that we're going to be talking about it, because I'm curious to see the next two. I haven't seen them, so oh. I, I guess we'll find out. I was uh, nervous about this, <laughs> about this trilogy, because I hadn't seen any of them, and I was worried that you were setting me up, or punking me with more <laughs> <laughs> of uh, Tony Monero-esque kind of stuff. And uh, no, I think you've I think you've done well, young lad. Well, I guess we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time, and we started with 2008's Iron Man. You can support that show and all of our shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon, where supporters get early access to our Patreon weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> you sound kind of sad.
<laughs> well, no, but you're all, it's always surprising with movies to see that there are still an abundant number of people who are one star people who still feel this is a crappy movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I um, mine actually brings up a point that I I feel like we actually could have talked about in the over the course of our conversation. So I'm bringing it up here thanks to this Amazon review. Uh, would you like to go first and get yours? Do your little uh, a little bit of an emotional cleanse. <laughs> sure. <laughs> mine is a one star by S L, who says totally disappointed, waste of money. Thought this would be a good, updated version of the 70s A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. What a huge disappointment. <laughs> that alone, really. That's everything right there. Language is atrocious. Every other word started with F. Neither I nor anyone I know talk that way. Do not understand why such is socially acceptable. A total waste of my money. Rating should be less than zero, but would not allow post without one. <laughs> Oh, this is amusing, Andy, because this is exactly where I'm going with my review. How funny. <laughs> uh, mine is from M. Carter, who says this is not PG-13 with a lot of exclamation points. I was so disappointed in this movie. I had reviewed before ordering PG-13 wonderful ratings. I saved it for a special night to watch. I was so saddened by what the, quote, raiders thought to be a great movie. The vocabulary seemed to be hung up on F asterisk asterisk asterisk, as in literally every other word. So unnecessary. And to think it's okay for a 13-year-old to hear such and see such use of drugs as in snorting cocaine. I guess I have lived a very sheltered life for 56 years. Please choose a different movie. The singing is beautiful. The only positive comment I can make. So just and just to confirm, though, it is rated R. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Maybe she was looking at one of the previous versions. Ratings I and... think that that is is very possible. Uh, um, I, and I think it's really funny about yours. No, no one nor no, the people I uh, I hang out with use language like this. Then uh, let's just say that, you know, people travel in groups. Because mm. uh, I, I, me and my friends are pretty foul mouthed. You are, are pretty foul mouthed. You sailor. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I think is funny is uh, now I'm looking at Common Sense Media, and there is a 15 year old uh, named Mature Fungus who says this is for 17 and up. They only give it two stars and says, full of sex and swearing, more swearing than Deadpool 2. <laughs> so that's true. But to be fair about the rating, it, none of the swearing is used in a sexual context. It's only used as an expletive, like yes. as, as part of the character. So I, I think that was, uh, uh, yeah, I just I don't even hear it. And and I do now that they're pointing it out. I, I realize it is every other word. That's part of his. It's part of who he is. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, we've worked really hard around here to not fear words. And so I always find this quaint for people who are terrified of words. I don't want to, you know, I don't know. Oh, we're a, we're a word fear in the house over here. Are you really? We fear words. Seriously, though. <laughs> now, you're making a joke, but seriously, right? Are you, you guys, you, you your kids swear like sailors, right? <laughs> They're what, 12? <laughs> I, 
I I do not take my children to see Kingsman. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hanging up on you. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.